Galatians chapter 1, beginning at verse 6, says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. I said it before, I'll say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If we are still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Uh, most of you know that I prefer... Um, to preach from narrative texts because it's easier for me. So taking on a didactic, instructional text like Galatians, um, I have to offset it with narrative stories. So get used to this. It happened last week. It's going to happen again this week. It would be unusual for an American soldier to find himself strapped to a fence post in France in 1944, uh, because at that point the Allied forces had routed Hitler's forces from France and were preparing to make the push into Germany. The circumstances that led to Eddie Slavic being bound to a post in France in a farmyard were not what you might expect. He had not been captured by enemy forces. In fact, he had never even seen an enemy soldier. In double fact, Eddie had been passed over for military service two times prior to 1943 due to his petty criminal history. However, the casualties from the invasion of Normandy in that campaign had led to uh, a need for additional troops in the European theater. So Eddie was conscripted into service from Detroit in the summer of 1943, and by September, he was deployed to France and headed for the American 28th Infantry Division. On his way up to the front lines, Eddie and his fellow new recruits were caught under heavy artillery fire, and all of them scurried for cover. When the barrage lifted, Eddie and one other person who history doesn't name made their way to the rear of the group and eventually attached themselves to a Canadian regiment. They remained there for six weeks at the back of the army until their hosts turned them over to American military police. As a result, Eddie didn't meet his commanding officer until he had been in France for almost two months. Immediately upon meeting his commander, Eddie requested a transfer to a rear post explaining that he was terrified to serve on the front line. His request was denied. Eddie tried a different track and informed his platoon leader outright that he would be deserting the next day. And he made good on his threat and the next morning walked several miles to the rear and presented himself at division headquarters with a handwritten confession of his desertion and asked for a transfer to a support unit. Eddie was advised to destroy his confession and return to his unit. He refused, saying he would rather spend the war in jail 
than on the front lines. Eddie was placed under military arrest. The divisional judge advocate met with him and strongly urged him to reconsider, offering to transfer him to another rifle company. He refused, saying he would prefer a court-martial. So on November 11th, Eddie Slovic was tried by nine staff officers. Not only was he found guilty within minutes, but he was also sentenced to death. The generally expected punishment for desertion in 1943 was not death. Realizing too late the error of his calculation, Eddie appealed to the division commander, Major General Norman Cota, and his appeal was immediately denied. On December 23rd, Eddie wrote a pleading letter to Eisenhower asking for a Christmas miracle that he might be forgiven and released. But on the morning of January 31st, 96 days before the end of the war in Europe, Eddie Slovic from Detroit, Michigan, found himself strapped to a post in a farmyard in France. Evidently, his appeal to Eisenhower had not been granted. He was then shot dead by 12 riflemen. Eddie Slovic was one of 102 servicemen executed during World War II by American forces. He was the only one executed for the crime of desertion. There were over 40,000 American soldiers who deserted during World War II. Eddie had no reason to expect that this would be his fate. Desertion did not seem like that bad of a crime to Eddie. Galatians 1.6 says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. This is very difficult. I talk with my hands. We can hear you. Let's try this. Sorry about your mandolin colors in advance. My goodness. Well, I know I don't, but there, I'll just yell. How's that? All right, so let's talk about the gospel. If Galatians is right off the bat in verse 6 is telling us that there, there's, there's a problem of desertion and that Paul insinuates what they're doing is going after another gospel, I think it's important that we understand fundamentally what the gospel is. And at the top of the list of gospel fundamentals, I would put the fact that Jesus Christ gave himself to deliver us from sin, right? We're good with that. In fact, Paul says it in verse four. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 3, what you will see is another kind of summary statement that Paul gives of what the gospel is, and here's what he says. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus Christ died for our sins. Fundamental gospel truth, number one. 
What does that mean? And what, what, what does sin do that we need Jesus Christ to die for it? Let me, let me say it this way. What is it principally that sin does that we need to be delivered from? What does sin accomplish that we need to be delivered from? Let's look at Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, verse 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. I'm going to read it again. Your iniquities, this is the Holy Spirit talking to you. All right? This is not directed at Israel eons ago. This is the word of God speaking to you. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Why? Why does sin do that? Well, in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, the prophet says this of God. You, God, are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Reason number one, that sin creates separation between you and God, is that God cannot comfortably or enjoyably or casually look upon sin and not be made sick by it, not be completely put off by it. In 2 Corinthians 6, 14, Paul says, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with demons? God can't abide evil, right? He hates it. Let's make it personal. God cannot abide your evil. He hates it. He does not want to be in the presence of it. So that's the first reason that sin creates a separation. When God looks at sin, he is reviled by it and does not want to be in the company of those who perpetrate it. Separation is created by your sin. Now let's look at the second reason. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Um, we're going to be in verse 18. I will start in 17 just for context. This I say, this is Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. All right. This I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. In a more familiar passage in Romans 1, Paul says it this way, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, and neither were they thankful. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God 
for the image resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. All right, so reason number one why sin creates separation, God cannot be in the presence of it. It is the antithesis of his very being. Reason number two, lost people, as they progress in sin, do not progress laterally. You don't do the same sin each day and and thus incur the same guilt each day. What happens is from the time that you're born and become conscious and, and first lie, for instance. Nobody had to teach anybody how to lie. We figured that out on our own, right? Nobody came along and said, here's how you do it. There's the truth. You say this instead. No, we all as children came up on a moment where it seemed better to us to obfuscate than to just speak the truth. As you get older, if you don't, if you're not interrupted in that sin, if you're not stopped in that sin, you progress into more damnable lies than that first one that you told. So the burden of guilt is always increasing on the sinner. Lost people move from sinning with no knowledge of God to sinning with increased knowledge and then eventually sinning in the suppression of that knowledge. The suppression flows from a desire to remain unreminded of guilt. Does that make sense? I don't want to know that I'm sinning against God, so I have to put away any truth of God that would remind me that that's what I'm doing. This results in wholehearted flight from anything which would remind a person of their accountability. This means I have to avoid anything that brings upon my memory the fact that there is a judge with whom I'm eventually going to have to do business. This is why moral subjectivity in our culture continues to increase with each passing year, and certainly each passing generation. I would point out that there were issues that just 10 years ago were pretty clear and pretty certain that have now become confused and uncertain. If you go back 50 years, you can see where gender roles began to be confused and conflated. The reason I'll tell you that gender roles had to become confused and conflated was so that we could remove accountability for sexual promiscuity. A woman has to know that it's perfectly fine for her to be the sole provider for her children. Otherwise, men are going to be held accountable for what they do with women. So, under the flag of feminism and under the guise of freeing women from the hostile uh, patriarchy, that they were actually put into bondage and you've got single motherhood and broken families all over this country because men don't want to be accountable for what they do with themselves with a woman. Now, today... We're not even sure what a woman is because we're going deeper and deeper and deeper into moral subjectivity. Professing to be wise, what do we become? Fools. As a lost man moves in the rhythm of sinful indulgence, he must flee from God. 
Why? Well, according to John 3, 19, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. That is what sin does that we need to be delivered from. Tangentially, I would point out that drug addiction is a, a breathtaking example or illustration of what I'm talking about. If you look at a drug addict, what, what happens is they're always descending into more horrifying behaviors in an effort to gain the feeling of euphoria that comes from the use of whatever their preferred substance is. They're, they're, they're on a trajectory away from civilized behaviors into reprehensible behaviors because their primary goal is that sense of euphoria. Sinners, in the same way, left uninterrupted by the Holy Spirit, are on a trajectory which leads them further and further away from civilized or God-honoring behaviors into behaviors which are more and more reprehensible because they have to flee from accountability and the presence and the knowledge of God. If Christ came to deliver us from sin, here's my question. What is the immediate consequence of that deliverance? Think with me. When Christ saves a sinner from sin, is the immediate consequence of that salvation an enhanced life, better friends, more money, more blessing from God? Let's think about this in the framework of the curse. What does sin cause? Now, before you answer out loud, and everybody is required to answer, I want you to think back to the last 15 probably minutes of my sermon. What I've just told you is sin creates a separation between you and your creator, between you and God. That's what sin does. There are two reasons that sin creates a separation. Reason number one, God cannot be in the presence of sin. Reason number two, sinners don't want to be in the presence of God because he is holding them accountable, right? So what does sin cause? All together now, what does sin cause? Very good. What is Jesus rescuing us from? Very good. What does that mean, the primary consequence of salvation from sin is? What is the main thing which Jesus' redemption accomplishes? If sin puts us out of relationship with our Creator, what does salvation actually do? Puts us in relationship with our Creator. Jesus' salvation primarily brings us into relationship with God. The restoration of communion between creature and Creator is the design of God's redemption. When you get saved, you get saved out of loneliness, isolation, and misery into fellowship, companionship, and fullness of joy. That's the gospel's remedy. In that framework, verse 6 
has a different emphasis than we might realize when we read it. So verse 6 says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. I want you to know the commentators, by and large, address this passage, this verse, in terms of the Galatian churches abandoning the gospel. Other preachers that I've listened to primarily address this verse in context of the Galatian churches abandoning the gospel. Here's what I think. It is not a duty or a responsibility which is being abandoned by the Galatians. It is not a church body or a political party. It is not even the gospel which is being abandoned by the Galatians. It is Christ that they are deserting. It is a relationship that they are forsaking. Maybe that will help us understand why Paul uses this word, thou met so. I am astonished. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him. The real issue here is not a doctrinal issue. The issue here is a relational issue. Whatever the Galatians are doing is threatening to put them back out of relationship with Jesus Christ. They are exchanging their communion with God for something else. How is that possible? Well, I have to say right out the gate, it's not possible. God isn't going to sovereignly save you and then you unsave yourself. That's not the way it works. But you can surely muddy the waters, squander your joy, and pollute your own heart with foolishness. That can definitely happen. Verse 7, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So contextually, Here's what's going on. And I'm going to try not to beat this horse to death as we work our way through Galatians, but I'll touch on it. We'll get into it a lot more in in chapter 2. There were men who claimed to believe the gospel in and, and throughout the area where Paul ministered. And perhaps they did believe the gospel, but what what these people, and they were called Judaizers, what they did was that they insisted in order to be saved from sin, Faith in Jesus Christ had to be accompanied by something else. Jesus was not sufficient. Salvation required faith plus Jewish customs. So you've got faith plus circumcision. Faith plus feasts and certain days that have to be observed. Faith plus you have to wear certain clothing. Faith plus, you can't eat certain things. And what Paul does right out the gate in Galatians 1 is he calls that heteros evangelion, another gospel. Not that there is another one. So he corrects himself quickly. Rather, according to verse 7, what it is is a distortion of the gospel. So here's my contention. And it's important that you understand this is my contention, so I am going to beat this to death this morning. Any requirement, any activity, or any tradition which seeks to replace relationship with Christ as the means of redemption or from the curse of sin, 
Or let me put it this way. Any requirement, any activity, or any tradition which seeks to enhance the requirement of relationship with Christ as the means of redemption from the curse of sin is a distortion of the gospel which leads you to desert Jesus Christ. If you add anything to him, you are deserting him. You are saying that he is insufficient. And like Eddie Slavic, if we desert Jesus, whatever our reason may be, we are in more danger than we can possibly imagine. So I said last week I would make this case. On either side of the road to eternal life is a chasm filled with dangerous and deep waters. On one side is the chasm of license. This is that mentality which says, once I'm saved, it doesn't matter what I do. Nothing that I do matters because I'm saved. That is the chasm or the pit or the moat of licentiousness. You do not get saved in order to take advantage of the blood of Christ by sinning more. On the other side, there is the chasm or the moat of legalism. We might veer off into thinking it is our works which save us from sin. Jesus plus. You begin to see the chasm of legalism right away in Galatians. This is a distortion of the gospel. Nowhere does the Bible teach that we are saved by Jesus plus anything. I'm going to say it again. Nowhere does the Bible teach that we are saved by Jesus plus anything? But let's finish the text so I can prove I'm not making this up. Verse 8. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, I think that the clarion call of the legalist is in between the lines of those verses. If we or an angel from heaven, so whether a mere man shows up with distortions or, I don't know, let's say you're out in the woods one day and an angel shows up and gives you golden tablets. <laughs> Either one of those things happens. What you possess is a distortion of the gospel. Whether the source is a man or an angel, the result ought to be the same. Anamatea. Let them be accursed, anathema. You don't listen to them for a millisecond. Paul says it twice. Like, it's hilarious to me because he's writing. They could go back and read it. Did he really say that? No, but he writes it twice. You don't even have to go back. Yes, I mean it. Let them be accursed. But I said the clarion call of the legalist is buried in, in the lines of these verses. So look what he says next. Verse 10. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? 
If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Why does Paul say this? Well, buckle up. I'm about to get personal. The legalist's defense is always the same. And I know this for two reasons. Reason number one that I know the legalist's defense is I used to be one. Reason number two that I know the legalist's defense is I've been accused of trying to make the gospel easier to believe. This is the error my Reformed brothers especially accuse me of. This is why, as some of you may recall, many of my sermons were corrected publicly by my co-elder moments after I finished preaching them. James plays fast and loose with the gospel. James just wants to get more people in his church. James wants to be popular so he doesn't hold his congregation to a moral standard. The reason James is successful is because he compromises the truth. James's gospel is easy believism. The reason they say that is that my gospel like Paul's gospel, does not attach any legal requirement to salvation. I'm not bringing this up in order to elicit sympathy from you, okay? I'm bringing it up because I want you to be fully aware that my gospel is distinct from those which attach a moral stipulation to salvation. Salvation is, I believe, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Amen. I don't believe that the gospel is faith plus anything. So here's what I believe. Extemporaneously, the gospel works like this. You are a created person. You are more valuable than all of the other creatures that God has also created. We are not just like birds and squirrels and sharks and monkeys. We're people. He gave us an eternal, immortal soul when he breathed life into us. You, like me, as soon as we could, because our nature was corrupted by the fall of Adam, you, like me, as soon as we could, violated the law of God, and we did it willfully. That violation of the law of God created separation between us and our creator. There is an uncrossable chasm between you and God when you are dead in your sins. Why is there an uncrossable chasm? Because when you're dead in your sins, you can't move. You can't think right. You can't even breathe. All you can do is rot and decay. God in mercy, recognizing your helpless condition, made a covenant with the Son, the second person of the Trinity, to redeem you from sin by dying a substitutionary death. 
So Jesus wraps himself in flesh, lays aside the glory that he enjoyed in heaven as the logos, as the word of God by which all things were made and all things were held together. He laid it aside, came to earth, inhabiting a human body, lived with the same temptation to sin that every other person has ever lived with, yet did not sin. That act provides for all those who believe what we call substitutionary obedience. I can't keep the law. Thank God he did it for me. Then he died, not just of old age, but he died a tortured, savage slaughter at the hands of sinners and an expression of their hatred of God and their rejection of all things that God represents and a perfect exercise of the separation that sinners create between themselves and God. They killed God in the flesh. However, through that death, he provided what's called substitutionary atonement. He paid the price for the guilt of the sins of all those who believe in him. Now, he has risen from the dead to demonstrate that he is fully victorious over sin, over death for all of his people. And you are called by faith to believe in his life, his death, and his resurrection so that you may be cleansed of all unrighteousness and brought into relationship by covenant with God, your creator. Not by works, by faith. Jesus' life and death is sufficient to save and change the sinner. But you must believe in him. You must lay aside your own pitiful efforts and put your faith fully in the work of the Son of God. And what that looks like is you have a relationship with him. You talk with him. You spiritually walk with him. You commune with God instead of fleeing from God. It's no more complicated than that. Explaining to a three-year-old what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ is difficult if you're trying to make it about, well, you know, they used to sacrifice cows and now they don't have to do that. No, a three-year-old understands relationship. They know what it means to be in the company of someone who loves them. It's that simple. Jesus said, unless you have faith like a child, you're not going to get this. We know what it means to be lonely. We know what it means to be in isolation. We know what it means to be miserable. Certainly, we know what it means to desire to be in company, to be in relationship, and to have joy unspeakable and full of glory. Talk to him. Pray. Open your Bible and read it. See if these things that I've just said are true. And avoid, at all costs, walking into the chasm of legalism. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.